0: A lot of child care centers decided to close down over the pandemic and they just haven't reopened. Um, It is a broken business model.
1: Business leaders share the economic impact of Alaska's child care crisis. From Alaska Public Media, this is statewide news on Alaska News Nightly for Thursday, August 24th. Good evening, I'm Casey Grove. Also tonight, with a looming natural gas shortfall and expensive imports coming, are South Central utilities taking renewable energy seriously?
2: And that actually lengthens the amount of time before we have a gap and a need to bring in imported natural gas by five years.
1: Those stories and more tonight on Alaska News Nightly. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio station.
3: Quality childcare creates futures for families, children, and the state's economy. When children are safe, engaged, and learning, parents can work and everyone has a better outcome. Thread has resources to support your family in their childcare search. Knowing what to look for in a licensed facility is important for the safety of your children. Thread also offers parenting resources and support. To learn more about quality child care in Alaska, visit ThreadAlaska.org. This message sponsored by Thread.
1: Alaska business experts say the ongoing child care crisis is hurting the state's employers and the economy.
0: This is a problem that is impacting their bottom line. It's impacting their ability to recruit and retain. It's impacting the morale and the, the happiness of the employee.
1: Katie Capozzi is president of the Alaska Chamber, the state's largest business advocacy group. She's also a member of the task force cr- started by Governor Mike Dunleavy this year to address childcare issues in the state. Capozzi presented a report from the chamber to the task force at its meeting Wednesday that took a look at how childcare impacts the state's businesses and economy. One major takeaway the state is losing a lot of money annually because of childcare issues.
0: We found that about $152 million are missing from the Alaskan economy because of people either choosing not to be in the workforce or working less.
1: She says that roughly a third of Alaska workers with children at home reported missing work in the last year because of childcare issues. She attributes the problem to several factors, including a lack of available childcare spots for children in urban areas and childcare deserts for more rural Alaskans. Kaposi says for workers in the childcare field, it's difficult to stay afloat, especially after the pandemic.
0: A lot of childcare centers decided to close down over the pandemic and they just haven't reopened. Um, It is a broken business model. The the childcare center facility, even at home is a broken business model, and so there's a lot of people who are just choosing not to take on that opportunity.
1: Kaposi says she's excited that the task force is taking on a true cost of care study to better understand how much it costs to run a child care facility and how to better support them in the future. Alaska utilities that use natural gas from Cook Inlet to heat homes and generate electricity will, in the not-too-distant future, need to look elsewhere. That's as gas producer Hillcorp says it won't have enough easily accessible gas to fulfill future contracts, so utilities are considering importing more expensive liquefied natural gas. The Northern Journal reports that will cause price increases for consumers, for example, with electricity costing 10-15% to more than it does now, and gas-to-heat homes even more. How soon that'll be necessary is up for debate, though. The Northern Journal's Nat Hers reported this week that renewable energy advocates say conservation, along with more power generated from solar and wind projects, could delay a shift to LNG by up to five years. But hers says those advocates are worried the utilities are not moving quickly enough in that direction.
2: So the utilities went to their consultants and they said, Okay, what are we gonna do about this? Uh, are we gonna build a natural gas pipeline? Are we gonna start cracking water into hydrogen and fueling with hydrogen? Are we gonna build some wind turbines and some solar panels? How do we get out of this? And they had these consultants go out and say, you know, what are the costs of these different options? How much are all these things gonna cost? Fast forward to now. In in the past several weeks, there have been a couple of in-depth reports issued by the region's utilities that basically say, "Okay, the best solution for us, and really the only thing we can depend on for the medium term, is importing liquefied natural gas." You know, starting in some number of years, a few to perhaps ten.
1: So I just want to address something really quick, too, that for somebody that's worried that like we're just going to run out of natural gas and all of a sudden you're not going to be able to heat your home. Are we sure that that is not going to happen, that we're not going to just like, you know, run out of gas one day?
2: That's a really good question. And I I think, you know, for the for the people who really know this industry and are following this issue, I don't I don't think anyone would tell you that there's like a real fear that the utilities are going to allow Alaskans to freeze during the winter. And I think, you know, these reports that have been published, I think, make it really clear that the utilities are working really diligently to ensure that that doesn't happen. And I think that's a message that they really want to put out there that like, look, we know that the single most important function that we provide is reliability. We have to keep the lights on. We have to keep the heat on that's the utility's sort of central message here that like we have a plan, we need to start working now because it takes time to get the permits and build all the infrastructure that we need to import this natural gas. What some of their critics and what some advocates are saying is, okay, we accept that we might need to have natural gas imports at some point in the medium term future, but are the utilities really looking at all the variables here and are they using all the tools in their toolbox to make sure that we don't have to import LNG and pay these associated higher prices before we absolutely have to and that's where you kind of get into these ongoing questions about are the utilities moving as fast as they could be to bring renewable power sources online to reduce our dependence on natural gas are they incentivizing energy conservation and in a way that might help us reduce our dependence on natural gas and lengthen the, the supplies. And I, and I think there were some interesting messages in this latest report, which was issued to Chugach Electric Association, that basically gave some suggestions about how to conserve our natural gas that, you know, there, I think there are some reasonable questions about whether the utilities and Chugach Electric Association, that the Anchorage utility, are really acting on.
1: Yeah. And I mean, that's not just rhetoric, right? I mean, it's it's not just people suggesting, hey, maybe we can use more wind power or more more solar or or whatever renewable stuff and conserve energy. There's actually, you know, some basis for that opinion. Right.
2: Well, it's really interesting. Basically, they sort of lay out several versions of the future. One version of the future is we do nothing to conserve gas and we don't manage to lock in any of these large scale renewable electricity projects that are currently under development anytime soon. Another version of the future, Chugach Electric Association pulls off two of these really big renewable projects, wind and solar projects in the next couple of years, they find a way to, to minimize increase in demand. We don't have widespread adoption of things like electric vehicles and heat pumps that really would uh, drive up our use of electricity. And that actually lengthens the amount of time before we have a gap and a need to bring in imported natural gas by five years. And I think, you know, to me as a reader, I look at that report and I'm like, wow 5 years before i have to see an, a, a 10 to 15% increase in my utility bill like that's that's a pretty important takeaway i think for for chugach and for some folks in the utility industry they are much more focused on hey we know that we're going to have to do this at some point and it's going to take a long time and we're a little nervous about it so we are focused on doing this now and communicating that we have to do it
1: so just getting back to like this debate about what chugach and other other utilities that use natural gas should do, the advocates that are saying, hey, we should be thinking more about renewable energy here in the meantime, why do they think that Chugach is maybe not moving quick enough in that direction? I think that
2: the whole debate here is really a question of emphasis. I think the executives and board members at Chugach know that members want them to move toward renewable energy I think the culture of utilities is a very sort of conservative culture and a culture that really doesn't necessarily find it easy to like embrace a wholesale change in the way that you do business, which is like for decades, we have just pumped natural gas out of Cook Inlet, burned it in these plants and used it to fill our needs. And it's been really good. Changing that to, like, mixing in renewables and, and you know, incentivizing energy conservation, where, as most utilities, I think, have a culture of trying to, like, build their customer base, like, that's a really hard thing to embrace, I think, if you've been sort of in this model for decades. And I think the folks at the utilities want to do that, but they also are rightfully anxious about... Are we going to have the infrastructure we need to keep the lights on? And that's like their first priority. They say that they're working on these things, like all of them as fast as they can. But I think, you know, you can look at the situation and say that effort is just
1: being put in other places right now. That was reporter Nat Hers with The Northern Journal. You can find his writing at northernjournal.substack.com. Still to come on Alaska News Nightly, the Dillingham School District plans to buy a hydroponic tank so students can grow their own produce.
2: They're gonna do kind of a, a price point study and a marketing scheme and sell some of the excess that we get from the farm.
1: That's ahead, stay with us.
4: Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio station.
3: You know that eating fruits and vegetables supports good health. But did you also know that frozen and canned produce offers the same health benefits as fresh. It's true, whether fresh, frozen, canned, or from the land, eating fruits and veggies can lead to a long and healthy life. So when it comes to getting the fruits and veggies you need to stay healthy, remember, every bite counts. This message sponsored by Snap.
1: The Alaska Department of Public Safety and the Anchorage Police Department announced Tuesday that they are publishing new quarterly reports specifically about missing indigenous people. Alaska has a particularly high case count of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. Federal, state, tribal, and grassroots interests have all pushed to identify why and to improve safety in indigenous communities. Most of the information in this new report comes from existing public missing persons data sets, but it does include a new data point about the circumstances around each unresolved disappearance. State Department of Public Safety spokesperson Austin McDaniel says analysts had to go through all 280 cases of missing people who are indigenous or of unknown race to get that piece of information. Some of the cases date back to 1960. Yeah, that was a a substantial lift. We've never gone through and. Publicly provided this level of clarity on missing persons cases that are, you know, in, in the eyes of law enforcement still open. Analysts coded the circumstances into one of four broad categories. More than three quarters were attributed to environmental events like plane crashes or wilderness mishaps. The agencies still consider them missing if their remains have not been found. Another 30 cases were coded not suspicious. McDaniel says these could be situations where the missing person has fled the country and law enforcement has not been able to confirm that they're alive and well. The remaining 35 cases, accounting for one-eighth of the total, fell into suspicious or unknown categories. The department says the new reports came out of discussions on the Governor's Council on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Persons. Members wanted more transparency and better data reporting on missing indigenous people. McDaniel says the new reports could also help inform high-level discussions about how to focus law enforcement resources and improve communication between agencies. There certainly could be a functional use on on the law enforcement side. The state troopers can access state trooper data,
2: and in reality, the Anchorage PD can access Anchorage PD data. That doesn't usually
1: um, allow us to have a ton of insight into uh, what other agencies are doing. The state also committed to add every missing person's information to a national database within 30 days of them being reported missing. In a 2018 report, the Urban Indian Health Institute said agencies' poor reporting to this specific national database contributes to undercounts and false perceptions of the issue. Kendra Kloster is a member of the Governor's Council and works on law and policy at the Alaska Native Women's Resource Center. She says she was glad to hear about the new reports. She says it's a good step forward, but there's more to do.
0: This isn't like the end-all, be-all of all our data systems here, where there's still a lot of other um, information to collect and to put in this. So there's lots of other places across rural Alaska that are not um, included.
1: This first quarterly report only covers cases handled by the state troopers and Anchorage police. McDaniel with the Department of Public Safety says they hope more agencies will participate in the future. President Biden has approved a disaster declaration for the spring flooding in parts of Alaska. According to a FEMA press release, federal disaster assistance is available now to supplement state, tribal, and local recovery efforts in the areas affected by flooding from May 12th to June 3rd. This makes federal funding available to affected individuals in the Cuspuk, Lower Kuskokwim, Lower Yukon, Yukon Flats, and Copper River regional educational attendance areas. Assistance can include grants for temporary housing and home repairs, low-cost loans to cover uninsured property losses, and other programs to help individuals and business owners recover from the disaster. Federal funding also is available to state, tribal, eligible local governments and certain private nonprofits on a cost-sharing basis for emergency work and the repair or replacement of facilities damaged by flooding. Residents and business owners who sustained losses in the designated areas can begin applying for assistance by registering online at disasterassistance.gov by calling 800-621-FEMA or by using the FEMA app. Administrator Isabella Guzman of the U.S. Small Business Administration visited Nome on Wednesday to tour the future port expansion project site. Guzman represents 33 million small businesses across the nation, including those in Alaska. She visited Ketchikan, Anchorage, and Nome over the course of three days to meet with those small business owners. KNOEM's Ava White has more about Guzman's time in Nome.
5: The Arctic Deep Draft port in Nome, which is anticipated to encourage economic viability, will ensure that supplies, food, and fuel reach residents of rural Alaskan communities in a cost-effective manner, the Arctic's first deepwater port will attract and ensure economic development in the region, says Guzman.
6: On an immediate basis, the port means job creation, you have contracts for our small businesses and 8A participants.
5: 8A is a nine-year-long business development program owned and controlled by socially or economically disadvantaged individuals. A roundtable discussion with Native Corporation leaders took place on Wednesday. Administrator Guzman exemplified the efforts Bering Strait's Native Corporation is taking towards building the city's infrastructure.
6: We visited the uh, Sound Query, uh, which is one of the companies of BSNC. Uh, that They're hopefully going to be a part of You know, building this infrastructure. They're already working on an airport project, and uh, hopefully they'll work on the port as well as they, uh, you know, as they source locally uh, when they're building this, uh, the port of Nome, and that's what the SBA is trying to ensure that small businesses have an opportunity to plug into these, um, these contract opportunities.
5: Guzman visited the local grocery stores, noting the high cost of prices overall. Guzman stressed the importance of the port with resource distribution.
6: You know, there's more opportunity to to distribute resources. Uh, you know, potentially attract some, um, attract some more. Um, uh, uh, tourism as well to the region uh, with you know with better uh, better connectivity. Uh, and I think you know infrastructure connects communities, it allows you to know, get your goods around, but it also allows you to get more customers.
5: In the Norton Sound region, Guzman says that while it varies from business to business, a lack of workforce remains a struggle for many small businesses beyond Alaska.
6: You know, workforce continues to be a challenge around the country, but, uh, you know, particular challenges here in Alaska, um, you know, obviously continued uh, some inflationary pressures.
5: The SBA is the only go-to resource and voice for small businesses backed by the federal government. Over 20,000 small business applications have been submitted in the state alone since President Biden launched the Investing in America program. Reporting from Nome, I'm Ava White.
4: Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by
3: Alaska Air Cargo, providing Gold Streak Express shipping for urgent deliveries throughout Alaska, with connections to more than 100 destinations in the lower 48 and Hawaii. More at alaskacargo.com. Whether this is your first try to quit or you've been down this path before, Alaska's Tobacco Quitline can help you quit for good. Get help creating a plan that is right for you no matter if you smoke cigarettes, vape, use smokeless tobacco, or ICMIC. With options like calling a coach, receiving text messages, and nicotine replacement therapy with patches or gum, you can quit your way at any time of day or night. Call Alaska's Tobacco Quitline at 1-800-QUIT-NOW or visit alaskaquitline.com. This message sponsored by Alaska's Tobacco Quitline.
1: The Kowalungan Tribe is offering free online college programs to all tribal members through a new educational partnership. KUCB's Sophia Stewart Rossi reports tribal officials are hoping the opportunity will help grow a workforce in Unalaska beyond the fishing industry.
7: The Kowalungan Tribe of Unalaska is partnering with an online college offering free certificates and degrees to all tribal members. The collaboration is part of the tribe's workforce development pilot program and offers a range of courses in healthcare, business administration, and skilled trades at Penn Foster College. Tanea Horn is the chief operating officer for the tribe. She says they intentionally chose programs that would support Unalaskans' workforce as the city looks to diversify its economy amid declining crab stocks and other uncertainties in the fishing industry.
4: Comes into kind of this flux where we don't. Quite know what's going to happen. It's our responsibility as tribe to ensure that the lands are protected, and and part of that is making sure that we've got capable people on islands who can do the work that comes with that economic development that we're so looking forward to in Alaska.
7: The Kowalungan Tribe is part of a trilateral agreement with the City of Unalaska and the Island's Native Village Corporation. The entities have pledged to jointly address the island's infrastructure needs. And Horn says they're also investing in Unalaskans.
4: We're training people. We're using federal training dollars through workforce development grants. And we're not having to invest in bringing people on the island. You know, it's reducing the operational expenses
7: there are dozens of free online Penn Foster College courses now available to tribal members to help them get a high school diploma, certificates, and degrees. Horn says several people have already enrolled in the college partnership since launching the program late last month. In Unalaska, I'm Sophia Stewart-Rossi.
1: The Dillingham City School District wants to start growing its own greens. The district recently received $150,000 from the U.S. Department of Agriculture and plans to buy a hydroponic tank for students and staff to raise produce for school lunches. The money comes as part of the Agriculture Department's effort to fund nutritious nutritious meals in rural schools. Phil Hewlett is the school district's business manager and food service director. He says the district plans to use the 40-foot tank in-school curriculum.
4: It's going to incorporate into the elementary science curriculum, uh, the middle high school science curriculum, as well as an
2: economics class. They're going to do kind of a a price point study and um, a marketing scheme and sell some of the excess that we get from the farm.
1: Produce is costly in Bristol Bay, even in the growing season. In winter, unless it's frozen or grown in a private greenhouse, produce travels hundreds, if not thousands of miles to get there but hydroponic tanks can grow food year-round. In a tank, plants are placed above a tub of water with nutrients in it. The plant receives nutrients from the tub and hydroponic tanks actually require less water and save space compared to traditional gardens. And the district is planning to invest in a tank built for Arctic winters. Hewlett says the tank will cost the district about $2,000 in electricity each month, but he says that they've weighed the cost against the amount spent on produce, the health benefits to students, and the teaching opportunities that the tank would offer.
2: With the electrical cost and then also the, the component with the science curriculum and the teaching aspect, that's kind of how we've, we've justified that electrical cost.
1: Hewlett says the school is also considering applying for grant funding to buy solar panels that would help power the tank, reducing its electricity bill. Dillingham won't see school-grown produce right away, though. According to Hewlett, they plan to get the tank set up next summer. Alaska has no shortage of marine predators, from orcas to stellar sea lions to salmon sharks. Over the past few years, researchers have identified a new, lesser-known predator that may play a key role in keeping Alaska's kelp forests healthy. KCAW's Meredith Reddick reports.
8: Third-year PhD student Nikita Schreeder reaches deep into a tank in the basement lab of the Sitka Sound Science Center looking for what she calls an underappreciated predator. These creatures are such effective hunters that when they enter an area...
4: It's like you can hear their screams underwater, but everyone's just trying to flee the scene.
8: Schreeder wrestles the creature out of the tank and holds it up to the light. She's holding a dinner plate-sized purple sea star. Sunflower stars, a type of sea star, are the focus of Schreeder's research this summer through her work with Professor Christy Croker at UC Santa Cruz. Schreeder hopes to learn more about how these sea stars could help protect coastal kelp forests. Sea stars may not intimidate us humans, but to a population of sea urchins, they're a formidable predator.
4: They basically throw their stomachs out, they lift up their arms, and then part of their stomach from the underside is like thrown out, and then they engulf the urchins.
8: While unfortunate for the urchin, this kind of predation is good for the ecosystem. Urchins eat kelp, and too many urchins can decimate kelp forests that many animals call home.
4: Basically, are like skyscrapers that create homes for all these different animals.
8: Keeping those forests healthy requires a balance of kelp-eating grazers, like urchins and abalone, and predators, like sea stars, who eat those grazers.
4: If you lose one part of this puzzle, so for example, you lose an important predator, then you might have too many grazers.
8: That's happened before. A decline in the population of sea otters, a well-known predator of urchins and other kelp-eating critters, led to the spread of urchin barrens along the West Coast where urchins have mowed down entire kelp forests. Now, researchers are trying to figure out if and how other predators such as sunflower stars could play a complementary role in protecting kelp forests. Sunflower stars eat urchins, but Schreeder suspects they may also affect urchin behavior in other ways. In her work this summer, she's trying to figure out if the mere presence of a sea star could cause urchins to eat less kelp.
4: So just sensing this predator might lead to the urchins being scared into eating less kelp. So they might be investing their energy into running away from the predator or hiding in little crevices rather than just like roaming the seafloor, eating kelp as they please.
8: In the lab, Schreeder situates a caged sunflower star in the center of a tank full of urchins. She wants to see if the urchins move away from the cage or eat less kelp when they sense that a sea star is nearby. Out in Sitka Sound, her team is running similar experiments, tracking the path of a sunflower star and seeing how long it takes for urchins and abalone to return to those spots.
4: Or whether that slime trail of a sea star is so strong that the that they're too scared to come back, basically.
8: If sunflower stars serve as vigilante kelp guardians, that's exciting news for the kelp forests, especially if the sea star population rebounds. Sea star wasting disease has plagued the West Coast over the past decade, dissolving huge swathes of sea stars. Sunflower stars were hit especially hard. Streeter says they've seen more mature sunflower stars around Sitka Sound this summer than they expected, that is, at least tentatively cause for celebration.
4: So it's exciting that we are seeing them this summer and hopefully these populations persist through time. We'll see.
8: Schreeder doesn't have results back yet, but she's excited to see how these sunflower stars might help protect kelp forests by creating what she cheerfully calls a landscape of fear for urchin populations. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Meredith Reddick.
1: That's all for this edition of Alaska News Nightly. We had reports tonight from Wesley Early, Jeremy Shea and Ava White in Anchorage, Francisco Martinez-Cuello in Bethel, Sophia Stewart-Rossi in Unalaska, Christina McDermott in Dillingham, and Meredith Reddick in Sitka. Our audio engineers Chris Hyde, Tim Rocky is our producer, and I'm Casey Grove. Good night.
4: This Nightly was made possible by
3: ConocoPhillips, Alaska. Building the next generation of Alaska's workforce through investments in education and vocational training to provide jobs right here at home. ConocoPhillips, Alaska.
1: And by Span Elite, offering online ordering and direct shipping of groceries and bulk orders to remote locations in rural Alaska. SpanElite.com.
4: This is Statewide News on Alaska Public Media.